Hello and welcome to another edition of Be There with Dali Loudspeakers, the podcast where we celebrate the minds behind the music, the producers, musicians, writers and hidden talents that make it all happen. Dali are famous for making the finest loudspeakers you can buy and this time we're marking the launch of the brand new Catch One soundbar. The Catch One brings Dali's renowned high-end audio reproduction and exquisite Danish design factor to a new breed of active speaker that's perfect for streaming TV, streaming music and your whole home entertainment system. Hear what you're missing with the ultimate sound companion. That's the Dali Catch One. Search Dali Catch with a K to find out more. And we're also tying in with Dali's music magazine, which is also called Be There. I'm the editor, my name's Andrew Harrison, and you can get a free copy by going to dali-speakers.com slash be there. Some of our contributors have joined me today to talk about upcoming stories in the magazine, nominate their own personal greatest five seconds ever in pop, and add to our ever-expanding list of the best-produced songs ever on our title playlists. They're all on the Dali Facebook page too, as is everything. So let's meet our guests. Michael Han is the former music editor of The Guardian newspaper in the UK. He now writes for The Financial Times, The Spectator, Uncut Magazine and Pitchfork. He has a terrible weakness for loud 80s metal. We are talking Def Leppard here. And he's just listened to the entire Black Sabbath catalogue end-to-end for a job. Hello, Michael. Welcome to Be There. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Andrew, and very glad to be away from listening to 19 Black Sabbath albums. Did, did you sort of peak early and then find there was a long diminuendo? Well, I started with the rubbish ones. I thought if I can make <laughs> my way through the rubbish ones, I've got something to look forward to, rather than getting the, the great ones from the early the early years with Ozzy Osbourne out of the way and then having that terrible decline. So, yeah, the rubbish ones... It was heavy going, Tell if I'm it. honest. You're complaining that Black Sabbath are heavy going. That's kind of the point of Black Sabbath. <laughs> what are the good ones? What are the beautiful surprises? Let's let's. Uh, well, the surprises. Never Say Die, which is the last album with Ozzy Osbourne, which is in Black Sabbath lore meant to be a disaster, actually sounds really good, kind of all over the place and quirky and experimental. It may just have had that feeling because after listening to a load of albums where you get churning riffs, to hear something different suddenly yeah. leaps out at you. So I may have overestimated its goodness. And the other surprise is Born Again, the album they made with Ian Gillan in 1983, which is reputed to be the worst Sabbath album of all, is actually all right. All oh, right, OK. Um, this is a sound and production and uh, soundcraft podcast. Who are the best Sabbath producers? Who were they best with and why? Martin Birch made them sound great in the early 80s with Ronnie James Dio. Mm. But uh, the fantastic records are the first four. And do you know, Andrew, I cannot tell you off the top of my head who produced Produced them. Mm, that's okay. But well, the first one, Master of Reality, especially, which has this fantastic dry sound. You, you know that Steve Albini was listening to Black Sabbath to get that really dry sound in the studio. Yeah. Well, pretty much everybody in America in their teenage years was listening to Black Sabbath. Oh, well, I think pr- pretty much everyone everywhere listened to Black Sabbath at some point, except probably you. Except me, yes. Um, who's your don of metal and hard rock production? Who would you buy a record just because their name was on it? Well, the best produced hard rock records of all time, I think, are the ACDC records produced by George Young and Harry Vander, mm. um, especially Power Age, which is a fantastic-sounding record. I mean, again, really dry, really minimal, really stripped down. I'm not a big fan of the records, especially hard rock records, where they throw bells and whistles at it. Although it can work, as we know from Robert John Muttlanger and his productions with <laughs> Def Leppard. Well, there we go, and it all comes back to Def Leppard. We asked Michael to listen to his favourite album uh, on a set of amazing Dali Callisto speakers, and to my surprise, he didn't choose Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, but the much fair Fables of the Reconstruction by R.E.M., and we're going to be talking about that a bit later in the show. 
Also joining us is Kate Hutchinson, expert on Middle Eastern, African and general non-Western music, who writes for the New York Times, Songlines magazine and The Guardian. She also DJs on Worldwide FM. And at the end of last year, she toured East Africa visiting the Niege Niege Festival in Uganda, which I hope I'm pronouncing properly, and then Nairobi, Tanzania and Malawi. Hello, Kate. How Hi. are you? Yeah. That's a sharp contrast between freezing cold London, where we are now. <laughs> yeah. How was that experience? Tell us how that went, like your grand tour. Where did you go and what did you do and what did you see? Well, I was desperate to go to this festival in Yeginegi. Oh. You did say it right. Oh, well done. It's uh, Bugandan for the uncontrollable urge to dance. Basically means to get loose. Um, it's in... very useful to have a, that word in the language. I wish we had it in English. I, I might just start talking about Yeginegi all the time. I've That's... got it. Absolutely, but it stirred up a lot of controversy. Um, this uh, this word, and actually, so this festival is kind of is dedicated to contemporary electronic music from Africa, yeah. and um, vernacular music from around the Ugandan and East African region. I was really excited to go, and then the country's minister of ethics and integrity, because there is one of those, <laughs> yeah, uh, kind of came, um, stepped up on Twitter, and sort of um, said that it was going to be a hotbed of homosexuality. They were going to be recruiting people into the LGBT movement and there was all this sort of furore around whether the festival would actually be allowed to go ahead or not. Oh. Um, luckily, it did. Um, it, is, it isn't any of those things. Uh, this is all just a kind of, you know, like a big... Um, overstatement, like a yeah. big statement that this guy was making. Wait, and, were you uh, not recruited into homosexuality then, Kate? <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, I didn't need recruiting. <laughs> um, but uh, but, uh, but so, so, so off I went. I finally went. I had two days to go. Um, the festival's still going ahead. And I booked my flight two days before it started. And I went off to Uganda. And then I hopped over to Nairobi in Kenya to see what was going on there. There's a really exciting electronic music scene happening there, centering around a club called The Alchemist. Then I hopped over to, um, I hopped, I got a plane, they're relatively uh, cheap, to um, to Zanzibar and then back to Tanzania, mainland Tanzania, where I went into the suburbs and met loads of 20-something young kids who were making this sound called Singeli music, which is essentially... I'm intrigued by this because you wrote something for The Guardian. This is 300 BPM music. I, quite, I like music quite fast. I think I, I don't think I could handle 300 beats per minute. Tell us about what is Singeli. So, I mean, 300 is the top end, right? So, yeah. But it goes to a very sort of slow, chilled out 200 BPM as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like Dutch Gabba. Yeah. <laughs> it is exactly. Um, it, it, has, it, has a lot, it has a lot in common with Gabba. And um, with limited resources and, you know, no sort of like instruments to make their own sort of samples, these kids are sort of these young guys are ripping and girls are ripping um, the sounds of bells, the sounds of instruments from tarab, which is a, a sort of Middle Eastern flavoured sound that comes from Zanzibar largely in Tanzania. Uh, they're pulling from all different kinds of um, sounds throughout Tanzania's history and they are queuing up these samples on virtual DJ. Hmm. So essentially what you're getting is very fast interlocking loops. Um, it can be very, very fast rippling bells and they also rap that fast. So the rappers are used to doing sort of six-hour shows, non-stop freestyling and on record they sort of um, whack up the uh, auto-tune so it sounds very chipmunky, the sounds, very chipmunky indeed, yeah. Fantastic, 300 beats a minute, I'm absolutely up for that. <laughs> If you'd like a copy of Be There, the magazine, go to dali-speakers.com slash be there and we'll send you one free of cost. 
London is an intensely modern, intensely crowded city. It's at the cutting edge of world culture, and if there's one sound you might not expect to be undergoing a rebirth here, it's jazz. And yet it's happening. We have a great piece on it in the next issue of Be There magazine. A new generation is redefining British jazz, acts like Ezra Collective, Kokoroko, and the all-female supergroup Neresia, which again, I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, with their standout saxophonist Nubia Garcia. They're all selling out major shows, and Neresia have just signed to Domino Records and with the Arctic Monkeys. London's new jazz stars are centred on the grassroots organisation Tomorrow's Warriors and they are overwhelmingly female. Kate Hutchinson, this is uh, this is very much your ballpark. What's going on here? Well, I mean, no one, no one really saw this coming, uh, did they? Um, jazz being the cool genre among young, well, not just young 20s, but largely kind of young, cool club crowds in London. And it's, it's kind of um, happened on three different levels. One is that there are um, a number of sort of educational groups who um, are putting money into training um, kids mainly from the African and Caribbean diasporas, people from low-income backgrounds, a very diverse mix of kids, you know, not your sort of classically trained private school educated, um, you know, set, mm. I think, which I think was the percep- could have been the perception of jazz at one point in the UK, certainly. And uh, and so they've been sort of really kind of behind this whole new wave of people. You mentioned Nubaya Garcia, mm. people like Shabaka Hutchings, um, all the kids that are in Ezra Collective. I say kids, they're in their 20s, but, yeah. you know. That's kids. <laughs> That's kids, isn't it? All the all the young guys that are in Ezra Collective uh, and Theon Cross, Moses Boyd and beyond. So there's this kind of um, very sort of grassroots, sort of community-based um, jam sessions that are going on and giving people um, access to instruments and jazz that they may not have had previously. Is there an identifiable London sound? What, what does it fit into the, you know, the grand tapestry of jazz? Is it particularly London-y? I feel like yes, there is um, because a lot of the people, in, a lot of the new young players are pulling on their diasporic heritage. You know, there's mm. Afrobeat, there's Calypso, there's dub, there's London grime, there's even UK garage in there. Little little flavours, little flourishes that really give um, the London sound an edge, and also the London sound is is party. Yeah. It's danceable. This isn't music to sort of sit down and have a nice dinner at, you know, but perhaps you might do at the Blue Note in New York. This is like jump up, skank out, maybe even have a little mosh, mm-hmm. dancing jazz. But what, what really struck me, kind of reading around it, because this is, this is a, a, an intriguing mystery to me, I'm not a jazz head, but it, it looked like ravers. It's like this is a party. There's not much of a division between the, mu- the the musicians and the fans. They all mix together, and the music is informed hugely by hip hop. I mean, we've, we've got a track which we're going to put on the playlist by uh, Ezra Collective called Mace Windu Rhythm, which is both a super kind of uh, you know James Brown informed groove. And it's got Star Wars in it, obviously, Mace Windu, Star Wars Jedi Knight. <laughs> and it just seems so much more contemporary and plugged in than the kind of dry academic jazz police jazz that we, you know, where, where it's very formalised. Definitely. I think you hit on something really important as well there is that there's a division between uh, audience and bands. So at a night like Steam Down or Church of Sound, which are two very crucial um, jazz events that are going on in London. Everybody's on the same level. The audience is at the same level as the band. There's a real sort of camaraderie uh, between the band and um, and the audience. And and you can go up to people after the gig and you can chat. And there's a, you know there's a real community spirit, which I think is what people have really latched onto as well. Michael, is that something that can continue though? Because I mean, music is replete 
with scenes in which the, it was about breaking down division between band and audience. But once a certain level of popularity is achieved, which everyone wants to achieve, it becomes impossible. It's on my mind because I interviewed the specials the other day and they were talking about that, how they wanted to break down the division between band and audience. But then we got to the point of playing theatres and suddenly having the audience up on stage was a nightmare rather than rather than a pleasure. And it kind of completely ruined the experience for them. So, I mean, f- presumably for that to remain, this, this jazz music, this, this London scene would have to remain underground. Otherwise, it becomes a victim of its own success. Well, without wanting to sound crass, I think that it's a lot to do with breaking down other types of divisions. You know, I went to Love Supreme Festival last year and to see a jazz group packing out a festival tent dressed in tracksuits and uh, dashiki tunics was um, felt quite powerful um, and that was you know I brought my parents along to that uh, festival to show them what was going on in UK jazz and this tent was just full of of like you said looking people looking like ravers having yeah. a bit of a biggie so I think it's about breaking down different um, divisions in terms of the sound progressing one interesting point that's been made to me um a couple of times by various sort of producers in the electronic music scene is that what the UK jazz scene doesn't quite yet have is its um, Svengali producer. It doesn't have a Goldie or it doesn't have a sort of, uh, you know, a 3D massive... It doesn't have that sort of underpinning person who's bringing potentially the quality to the sound production, which I think is a really interesting point. A, does does any scene or sound really need that? But B, is that going to elevate... The um, the output of these artists to yeah to like a really importantly studio quality album. It'd be interesting to see that if that person um, emerges. What what does it say about this scene that it's uh, it's so female? It, there's there's loads of women running this stuff, not just Nareja. It's just fantastic. I have to say, it's one one thing is it's Nareja. I'm bad at pronouncing Nareja. No, I, I, no, I'm terrible at pronouncing too. But um, secondly, there is actually um, one guy in Nareja, and I feel terribly sorry for him because, that's because okay. <laughs> um, they're, they're being um, referred to a lot as, including by myself, as all female, and I didn't realise that there was a one poor lad. But he's probably very in touch with his female side. I would have thought he'd, he's probably going to have to be, hasn't he? Absolutely. Yeah, it's brilliant that there's so many women in the scene, and I think people are really conscious about. About, um, pushing women forward. Uh, when I interviewed Ezra Collective for New York Times, Femi, uh, a very charismatic drummer, spent a lot of that interview really kind of talking up um, his female counterparts and really sort of making a, a big point of how it's important for people uh, in jazz to talk about their fellow musicians and artists and, and big everyone up as much as possible. We've put uh, Fisherman by Nariha, which I'm now pronouncing correctly, Mace Window Ridden by Ezra Collective. Who else should we be putting on the playlist? Who should people be listening to? If you're background say if you're a listener to this podcast and your background is in say club music who would you love from this scene so the club music aspect is really important because uh jazz records are being played more and more in clubs it's like i said it's becoming very very danceable so from that kind of world you've got people like kamal williams who released an album last year that almost broke the top 10 you've got the tendalonious crew who are doing things very much with heavy on the flute with electronic music um, very spiritual very beautiful um, and if you want something a bit more chill you've got the gondwana records crew from manchester a bit more established very on the spiritual jazz kind of tip and then um i really love coco Roco. Mm. I think they are one of, you mentioned them earlier, they are one of my big sort of tips for this year, along with Nariha. And they've just, uh, they're putting out an EP very soon. Fantastic. Do you think that, the, just in closing, do you think this might be kind of the musicianliness of it, but also the improv side of it, might be a kind of a generational reaction against the idea of just a programmer and an MC, or just a DJ and an MC? The idea that playing music 
which you know be, becoming proficient at playing music which years ago was considered to be something of a of a of a of an old fashioned or irrelevant thing particularly within urban and black music it's been out of the picture for such a long time that it becomes radical and exciting and new and different yeah definitely i think potentially a lot of that could have been down to the fact that if you if you were going to improvise, you had to be a certain level. Yeah. Only impresarios or virtuosos and jazz could improvise. And actually, there's this real kind of reclaiming, reclamation hmm. of that form um, into just having fun, Fantastic. into just having a jam. Read more about this in the next issue of Be There magazine. Just go to dali-speakers.com slash be there and Dali will send you one for free. Let's move on to one of our semi-regular features, The Greatest Five Seconds in Pop. We all have our personal favourite best bits, that incredible moment on a record that sounds so amazing you can't wait to hear it again. We ask our guests now and again to nominate theirs and say why they are so amazing. Michael Hahn of The Guardian and the FT, what's your personal greatest five seconds in pop? It's the opening five and maybe a little bit of extra second. The opening five and a tiny bit of a seconds of Jump by Van Halen because... Pop openings are all about promise. Mm. Um, they are the promise of something new and exciting. Uh, they're a moment. They're telling you that here before you in the following four minutes is everything you could possibly want. And the opening five seconds of Jump by Van Halen, a synth fanfare carrying well, the riff. Well, like all good bits, you know it and you can... Probably sounds a bit better than that. It, it does sound a bit... Oh, not much, but, <laughs> but, but, but a bit better than that. Well, yes, and that's the point. Those great five seconds should be things that everyone any, anywhere can hear and go, I know what that is and I know what this is intended to trigger in me. Mm. And what what jump triggers is euphoria. It does. Um, and uh, as you know, surf metal is not my, necessarily my cup of tea, Michael, but I did play this through. I've got a set of Dali Oberon ones at home and... Played them through this, and it was ridiculous. It was ridiculously exciting. Oh, it's enormous. It felt like a mad rave record. Well, it would, it would appeal to you, because it's a pop record, of course. Yeah. It's played on synths. There aren't any of those horrible guitar riffs to ruin it for you. Absolutely. It's just, just the enormity of the mid-'80s presented in full Technicolor. In five and a bit seconds. Kate Hutchinson, it's your turn. What are the five seconds of pop, or music in the broader sense, that always send you into transports of delight? Well, I... Obviously, there was there were so many intros that I could have chosen, um, and you know I, I really wanted to pick uh, Bikini Kill's "Rebel Girl" because that um, intro riff is one of the fav- my favorite things of all time. But um, I've chosen instead the the weird backwards bit in Missy Elliott's "Work It." Yes, <laughs> <laughs> because when I I remember when I heard I must have been fifteen when that track came out. And I don't think, number one, I'd heard a woman rap before. Mm. So that was the first thing that really kind of blew my mind. And secondly, she was doing it backwards, or at least so I thought at the time. (laughs) My question to you is, is she doing it backwards because it's full of rude words and rude thoughts? Because that's my suspicion, why it's a backwards bit. I think it's actually done in production, Mm. that bit. So I think I don't think she's actually saying those words backwards. I think Tim Blam was just like, it's it's, put your thing thing down, flip it and reverse it. And I think he was just ripping on that by playing that backwards. But at the time, I didn't know that. I just thought she was magic. She is the queen of amazing bits as well, though, isn't she, Missy? There's at least three other amazing bits just in that tune. That whole track... Is, yeah. uh, is a perfect five seconds, actually, from yeah. the production to the elephant whale. Yes. Two things. First, all backwards masking contains praise to Satan. You know that. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just what it is. <laughs> Second, you see, I wanted to pick five seconds from I, That's Somebody by Aaliyah, but I listened to the track through several times and I couldn't isolate a single five seconds I would have picked because it's all great. Bum, it's bum, 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 bum. 
Yeah. Dirty, dirty. It's, it's a complete work. It's a Gesamtskunstwerk, <laughs> is what it is. Well, we're going to put uh, Work It by Missy Elliott on our Daddy playlist as well, uh, which you can find and play through your lovely big speakers. Get your free copy of our music magazine, Be There With Dali, at dali-speakers.com slash be there. Now, from the sweaty jazz dives of London to humid, overgrown Athens, Georgia, we often grow to love our favourite records while listening to them on less than optimum equipment, usually because we're penniless teenagers at the time. We think we know them inside out, but do we? For Be There magazine, we like to invite our guests to listen to their favourite album properly, perhaps for the first time, on amazing Dali speakers. How well do they really know it, and will they discover surprises in there? Michael Han chose R.E.M.'s third album, Fables of the Reconstruction, and we had a good old listen through Dali's astonishing Callisto wireless speakers, these immensely powerful active speakers that use a proprietary connectivity to get a super lossless signal without any cables in your front room. Michael, why did you choose Fables of the Reconstruction? Well, most of my very favourite albums, in fact, sound like they were recorded in public toilets. <laughs> and I thought, when you're using really, really terrific speakers, probably something that sounds like it's recorded through a public toilet is not going to be the best thing. So they, I wanted they do to say you want to hear the room, but you don't necessarily <laughs> want to hear that room. Yeah. So I wanted to pick something that I did love, that I knew inside out, uh, but also that had enough sound quality that I would be picking out the good bits from it. Um, and Fables of the Reconstruction, which was produced by Joe Boyd in Wood Green in London. Exactly. Well, not, you know, not humid Athens, Georgia not at all, humid but Athens, rainy, Georgia's. cold Wood Green, yes. That, that was what I thought. Well, I know this sounds good, and I hope that I'm going to get much more from it. And um, it was an odd experience, because th- those speakers, the Callista speakers, are so much you know, boomier and more powerful than what I'm used to listening, listening through. Hmm. I mean, I have decent speakers, but not high-end, you know. But to hear it that way, to hear Peter Buck's guitar kind of leaping out of the speakers at you was gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, it's kind of a cliche to say, but separation really, really matters because you feel yes. when, you, when it's an artist that you're familiar with and you have not just your idea of how they play, but your an idea of how the individual members' personalities look together, to actually hear them clearly present and you can go, oh, you know... Peter Buck, oh, it's Bill Berry. Well, I think I can't remember what track it was, but we were listening to it, uh, and there was another music writer who'd uh, who's very familiar with that album in the room as well. In fact, he said that uh, his uh, his ex had made had listened to it every night for years to try and go to sleep, <laughs> and we both heard acoustic guitars that we hadn't noticed before in any of our previous iterations of listening to it. I mean, that's an album I associate with one side of a C ninety that uh, my friend Maria Nazarkovich gave to me when I was fifteen, and because I was madly in love with Maria Nazarkovich when I was 15 I listened to it over and over and over again until I loved it obsessively it as well as her yes um, so yeah I associate that record with headphones on a really cheap crappy C90 playing on a fairly cheap crappy cassette player in my bedroom late at night in weekdays in the mid 80s and it, it seems to it came from another world then I mean the thing I love about that album is that it transports you to place even though they made it in London it's so redolent of the south I mean, the lyrics are a collection of legends. The music is lush and, as you said, humid. And it feels like the Deep South. It feels like you're being trans- transported. And uh, hearing it through impeccable speakers mm-hmm. brought that all the more home. Do you know, for a minute, Andrew, I thought that Hackney on a cold Monday night was Athens, Georgia in summer. There you go. Well, that's a, that is a bit of a miracle performed there. <laughs> I think, I think you, when we were listening to the record, you said this is the last mysterious R.E.M. album. After this, they become more comprehensible. Yeah, well... 
this is the first one where Michael Stipe was definitely writing lyrics. I've spoken to him about this, and he said, well, yes, I was trying to tell stories. I'd been reading Joan Didion, and I wanted some of that in my lyric writing. His enunciation became clearer, but it was st- still a murky record. Mm. Uh, the next one was Life's Rich Pageant, which was produced by Scott Litt, and suddenly the drums are a lot higher in the mix. Stipe, Stipe's voice is much higher in the mix. It's still a terrific record. I liked R.E.M. for a long time, but this is the last one we have the sense of a group that is looking inwards rather than outwards. Um, mm. Now, I don't think that's always a good thing. I think we all hate the we-make-records-for-ourselves cliché of music, but this is one where they feel like they're digging inside. They're, they're not clawing out into the arenas or anything. But also one of the interesting things about that moment in the in Ariane's world is is the really great groups seem to arrive from a, a world of their own. Yes. And it's a world you want to explore. So I remember when I first encountered Public Enemy, I had no idea who they were. Even how many people were in the band? Was it even a band? Yeah. When the Smiths materialised, or even you know when Madness materialised when I was a kid, it's like, who hey, are these people and where do they come from? I want to know. And there's mystery and there's intrigue. Yeah, that's right. R-E-M. That's right. A group that sounds like um, it's almost a telepathic construction rather than a group of musicians sitting down in a room and writing. It feels mm. like everything emerges from them rather than being rather than being written. And the, the first time I spoke to the members of REM, Mike Mills, the bass player, was kind of reflecting on on it and saying, well, it's kind of a miracle, really, isn't it? I mean, the four of us happened to be in Georgia, in Athens, Georgia, at the same time, um, students at the University of Georgia. The four of us had the same musical chemistry that enabled us to come together and do this. And he said, from our first rehearsal, he said, I'm not going to say we were great from our first rehearsal, but from our first rehearsal, we knew we had something that no one else had. And it Mm. is a miracle. The creation of every great pop group is a miracle, which should never be understated. Absolutely. Um, What's your favourite track that we should put on the playlist to represent... My favourite track is the opening track, Feeling Gravity's Pull, but don't put that on, because I don't think that's the one that has the full lushness <laughs> of the sound. I'd say put on uh, Life and How to Live It, because I love Peter Buck's guitar playing in that song. OK, we will do exactly that. For your free copy of our music magazine, Be There with Dali, go to dali-speakers.com forward slash be there. Okay, we're coming towards the end of the podcast and we always ask our guests to nominate the best production in all the world of music. Now, Kate has been on the show before and she got to make her choice in a past podcast so she doesn't get another go. So it's just down to you, Michael. What's your choice for the best piece of production? My favourite sounding album of all time is Rumours by Fleetwood Mac, uh, which sounds glistening in every respect. You mentioned separation earlier and I can only imagine how this would sound on top of the uh, top of the range speakers because this is one that you listen to it through a transistor radio and you hear everything. I've never heard a record so perfectly recorded where every detail is apparent. And the single track I would go for to exemplify that is secondhand news because there's so many different textures on it. There's the acoustic guitar, there's the drums, there's the bass. There's a sense of everything coming together. I, I never tire of hearing secondhand news. Well, you'll have to come around to our house and let's do it on the, on the lovely speakers then. I can't take the speakers home after. No, you can't. One of them. Can I have one of them? You can't and listen to it in mono. <laughs> listen to the Beatles in mono. Michael, thank you very much. You've got to put that on the title playlist. And that's the end of this episode of Be There. Thanks to Kate Hutchinson. Now, Kate, you're going to stay around for another episode later in the run, aren't you? So you'll Absolutely. be talking to us again soon. Two for the price of one. Two for the price of one. And thank you, Michael, for coming on in. Uh, you're not allowed to come around my house and take one of the speakers away both or none. Remember, you can get your copy of Be There with Dali magazine for free by going to dali-speakers.com slash be there. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with another episode, so why not subscribe? Just search Be There with Dali on your favourite podcast app or go to audioboom.com and search Be There with Dali to get a direct download. Plus, we're on the Dali Facebook page as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Be There from Dali Loudspeakers was presented by Andrew Harrison and the studio producer was me, Alex Reese. Be There is a Podmasters production. <laughs>